Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast, your go-to source for personal, professional, and organizational growth and development. We hope you tune in often for all things people management, organizational development and change, organizational leadership, and social impact related. Maximize your personal and organizational potential with Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. In this HCI podcast episode, I talk with Bill Flynn about flourishing as a leader. Bill Flynn, welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Hey, Jonathan, thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to chatting with you. Yeah, I'm excited about this. We've been preparing for this episode for a while now, and uh, we're going to have a nice dialogue. Today, we're going to be focusing on flourishing as a leader, uh, why leadership is so important, and some of those elements that uh, you know allow some companies to survive and flourish while others fail. Uh, some of the roadblocks, the gaps, um, and the pitfalls that people fall into as they're trying to become an impactful and successful leader. Uh, these will be, you know, the areas of focus that we uh, look at today. As we get started, I wanted to share Bill's bio with everybody. Bill Flynn has collaborated with Alan Mulally, uh, pitched Stephen Jobs, accomplished much, failed often, and learned many useful lessons from 30 years of studying the science of success. He is best described as a pragmatic Simon Sinek, an optimist and an operator. Bill embodies his core purpose, simplified servanthood, by spending each working moment to help create a compassionately productive society by enabling enlightened leaders to focus on the few things that truly matter to their teams and key stakeholders. He has worked for and advised hundreds of companies, including startups, where he has a long track record of success spanning multiple industries. Bill has been a VP of sales eight times, twice a CMO, and once a GM of a division of about 100 million IT service company before he pivoted to becoming a business growth coach in 2015. Prior to that, he had five successful outcomes, two IPOs, and seven acquisitions, including a turnaround during the 2008 financial crisis. Bill's best-selling book, Further Faster, the vital few steps that take the guesswork out of growth continues to garner a, near, a nearly five-star rating, generating demand for virtual and in-person national and international speaking opportunities. Uh, Bill, again, it's a real pleasure to be with you today. I'm excited for this conversation. Anything else you would like to share with listeners by way of background or personal context before we no. really dive on in? <laughs> I think that's enough. <laughs> I don't think any podcast host has read my whole bio before, so that was interesting. <laughs> Thank you for doing that. <laughs> no, you know, you, you have a great background. I love sharing the bios of my guests because uh, such a rich and diverse set of experiences, background, um, and, and you know, different perspectives that you bring to the table. So I think that's important for the framing of our conversation. You know, you come at this and you come at leadership, you know, a little bit different than other people. Someone who who comes at it from a background in HR or people operations, they might view it a little bit different than your your sales and your operations background. Uh, and that's okay. So we we have an opportunity to explore that. And, and I think that's wonderful. Um, 
so let's let's really just start with kind of the fundamentals here. And first, I'm I'm really curious about kind of your own take on effective leadership. What got you passionate about this topic? Why is it something you focus on now? Why did you transition in 2015 to be a business growth coach? And why do you focus so much of your effort and energy around a, a successful leadership? Sure. Let me, I'll do the transition first and then I'll sort of talk about leadership a little bit. And you're right. I'm a bit of an iconoclast. So I may say things that uh, offend some of your listeners, but I, I can defend them. Uh, so uh, I did 10 startups between startup five and six. My wife and daughter asked me if I really needed to do another one right away. And I said, no, we had done relatively well. I mean, I'm not, I'm not independently wealthy or anything. I still have to work, but the first, I was four for five um, in, in my first five startups. So that's a pretty good track record, 80%. It's usually about 10. So I took some time off, but during that time, I got calls from friends and colleagues who said, you know, can you help me out? I hear you're not working, you know, and one of them ended up hiring me. Um, and uh, I took over, that was the 2008 crisis uh, thing. It was actually January 2009 is when I started as the GM. And um, we were an email hosting company and the entire technical infrastructure collapsed. So we didn't really deliver email to anyone in any timely fashion for two and a half days. So what I had to do was I became a coach. I didn't know I was a coach at the time. I wasn't smart enough to know that's what I was doing, but I'm pretty Socratic in my um, philosophy anyway. Um, so I told my team, I said, look, we're in trouble. Uh, we need to fix this. We, luckily, the company that took us over was on its way to fixing it. They just had to accelerate it. Um, I said, but we got 60 people working for us. We've got seven, eight, 9,000 customers. You know, we got to take care of these folks and, and get this thing back to where we're going. And I said, look, I, I've never run a technical infrastructure before. I'm, I'm a technically inclined, but, you know, uh, I've never done one. I've never run support before. I've never run finance before. I said, so I don't really know what I'm doing, but I do know where I want us to end up. I said, so let's discuss, debate, and decide on that. And then I need you guys to draw the map from where we are now to how do we get there and then how I can help. Uh, and that worked phenomenally well. We, um, we ended up, uh, I left before, but we doubled the business in about two years, uh, which had been about seven years old. Um, we had increased the average order size by about 30%. I didn't lose one employee who were getting yelled at left and right. It was 2008, 2009, so there wasn't a lot they could do to go anywhere, but um, you know, they were relatively engaged. So that's sort of how I started. And uh, I loved that feeling not that we were successful, the, the resume stuff is great, but the best part were, was when two of my teammates who ran support and technical infrastructure, who were generally younger managers, meaning not younger in age, but they hadn't really managed before. The day I left, they both basically said the same thing to me, which is, I just want you to know the stuff that you made me do, that roadmap, uh, and, and then figure it out. He said, it was really, really hard, um, but I'm so glad you made me do it because now I know how to do it, right? So, and, and that was such a wonderful feeling and I wanted to get that back again. So in, after I did a bunch of other startups, which, which were not as good at all, um, I decided I wanted to try something else. I was about 50 years old, 51 or 52. And, you know, I said, let, let me, I want to get that feeling back. How do I do that? How do I become a coach? So I looked at a whole bunch of um, methodologies from EOS to EMYTH to scaling up to you know, there are 20, uh, so far I found 23 different business operating systems that are, um, that you can choose from. And uh, I, I, I resonated most with scaling up, which, uh, which I kind of like the philosophy, very holistic. And that's based on Ro or John D. Rockefeller and what he did um, with Standard Oil. 
uh, and I joined that group. I'm no longer with them, uh, but that's that's the foundation of what I teach. Uh, and I now know what a calling is. I um, I knew what it was intellectually, but I love what I do. I mean, time just flies by. Uh, I love my clients. Uh, it's 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 so wonderful. So I'm really glad I did it. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for that background. And it's it's really fun to hear about how people find themselves, you know, in this kind of a sphere, focusing on coaching and mentoring and and uh, executive leadership and such. Uh, it's it's a really important role uh, because I think there's there's very there's there's a lot of uh, executives out there, a lot of organizational leaders who, you know, have passion, they have technical expertise in their discipline, they, they advance in their career, they get promoted, they find themselves in leadership roles with the best of intentions, but they don't really know what they're doing. Yeah. Um, and, but they have the desire, they want to learn, right? But they need, yep. they need someone to help them get there. And so that's where you come in. Uh, that's the same kind of work I try to do. And, and I think it's really meaningful. I, I feel the same way as you. I, I think it's a calling. I think um, it's, it's really uh, invigorating uh, to be involved in that kind of work. So I'm, curi I'm curious then, uh, with that background, what do you see as the main job of a leader? When you're meeting with a new client and you're trying to, to map things out, getting, you know, starting with the foundation of, of purpose and meaning and fulfillment, like what, what is it about being a leader? What do they need to do? Yeah. So first I'll, I'll start off with my controversial thing. I don't actually think leadership is a thing. Uh, and I, I have, I have, a, I have sort of a brain of a scientist. And uh, to me, if you could, if you can produce it and, and re repeat it, then there's some sort of um, cause and effect. But you can't repeat leadership. Uh, everyone is different. Everyone applies things differently. Steve Jobs is different than Alan Mulally. It's different than Warren Buffett. It's different than Bill Gates. You know, and such. Nadella is way different than 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 Balmer before him at Microsoft. Everyone does it a different way. So that means there's no formula. There's no way to you know, learn to be, here's how you become a leader. Here's the box. And if you learn the box and then you do it. So I actually think followership is the thing. Uh, we can study that. We can find out why do people follow other people? What are the, what are the aspects? And to be honest with you, I've, I've asked, so I'm, I'm connected to Amy Edmondson, who's a psychologically safe lady. And I asked her, I asked uh, Lisa Feldman Barrett, um, who is um, a neuroscientist and studies emotions and business. And, and I've asked a, a bunch of people saying, is there anyone who's actually studied followership to figure out how followership works? And no one really has. They've studied the, and they've categorized followers. So after they've followed, but I wanna know what causes someone to follow. So I have my own theory, which is that uh, in order for people to follow you, you have to have a compelling vision or something compelling about you. It might just be your aura or whatever, you know, how you hold yourself, but it has to be compelling because Followership is a voluntary act. You can't say I'm your leader. They say you're my leader because they follow you. Um, you know, you can certainly be a boss or an authority figure, but that's different than being a leader. And the only other thing I think you really need to have, at least that I've found, is courage. Um, because uh, if you have this compelling vision, people are going to poo-poo it. They're going to say it's, it's, it's wrong. It doesn't work. Uh, you're going to have to give up. If you want to be really be a leader, I think the greatest leaders fire themselves from the day to day as much as possible. So that means you have to give up control. You have to give autonomy. You have to push the decisions down to where the information is. And that takes courage for a lot of people because, you know, especially if you're a small, a smaller business. Um, so that's yeah, sort of my, yeah, I think, well, I, I think that's great. I like that framing because 
you're absolutely right. The type of leadership you're describing requires a heightened level of personal security, right? Mm -hmm. I have to, I have to be emotionally secure with myself and confident in myself, um, allowing myself to, to give up control, to delegate power and to lean on the experts that are on my team and to not try to position myself as the expert that everyone has to look for, for their marching orders. Right. That's kind of this old command and control model of leadership that doesn't really work, uh, it, it works. Community. It works in certain situations, right? If it's in, an emergency or a in crisis. crisis in crisis situations. But, yep. you know, we're, we're, we're in a knowledge and tech driven economy where yep. people need to innovate and uh, constantly uh, pivot and be adaptive. And in that in the situation most people find themselves in most days, that kind of leadership doesn't really work and it's not sustainable in the long run. It's, it's, it's sustainable in, in short spurts during crisis. And that's yep. about it. Right. It does not scale. Absolutely yeah. right. Yeah, one of one of the things that I, I write is that leaders, um, when people say, "So why do you think this happens?" and I said that leaders rely much too much on luck, effort, timing, um, and force of will, and that doesn't scale. It certainly doesn't scale profitably. So you have to find another way. If you want to grow your business, if you just want to stay a small business and be a few people, that's perfectly fine, right? You're a player coach, and that's what how it goes. But my my clients are looking to grow, and generally they want to dominate whatever space they're in. Uh, and I tell the leader, uh, your job is not to run the company anymore. Your job is to predict the future. And in order to predict the future, you actually have to slow your brain down and relax it because that's when you get your best ideas, right? So I'll, I ask this a lot, Jonathan. So when do you get your best ideas? What are you doing? For me, it's it's when I'm out walking my dogs, honestly. Yeah. You're just relaxing. I've heard shower, on a run, you know, whatever, yeah. whatever type of thing. So you, because your brain has slowed down, it's something called the edge effect, uh, where loosely connected things actually physically fuse in your brain, right? The, the synapses and neurons connect. And that's when you get that flash of insight. And I said, you know, strategy and, and running a business is a creation process. It's about innovation and insight. And the best way to do that is to slow down and let your brain, you know, fill it, fill it with stuff, right? Certainly read lots and, uh, and, and understand all the good things about business and how that works. But then you got to let it marinate and, and, and such. I'm excited to announce the publication of my new book from HCI Press, The Alchemy of Truly Remarkable Leadership, Ordinary Everyday Actions That Produce Extraordinary Results. Consider how the nature of work has shifted over the past 50 years. With increased globalization, rapid technological advancement, and the shift in economic composition, the average job of today looks very different than the average job of 50 years ago. What will the jobs and organizations of tomorrow look like? Moreover, what does this all mean for organizational leaders? What are the core competencies and capabilities of organizations and their leadership that are prepared for continued disruption and geopolitical and socioeconomic shifts? Regardless of what the future holds, increasingly, leaders need to be socially minded, data-driven, decisive, champions of talent, and disruptors of the traditional notions of leadership, teams, organizations, and work. The alchemy of truly remarkable leadership will help you to explore your own leadership competencies and capabilities and consider ways to apply and implement them into your workplace and personal life.
you, you can't draw from an empty well. So you got to fill up the well with, with, you know, reading great stuff, talking to really intelligent people, surrounding yourself with a great team, having really great, you know, dialogue and strategy sessions, all that kind of stuff that fills the well. So that when you lower the bucket, you have something to draw from. Um, But ultimately, like you said, you have to, you have to be able to quiet your mind, you have to be able to step back. If you're going to be able to see the forest from the trees, uh, you can't be in the weeds, right? Yep, you can't. And, and people love being in the weeds. Um, I was a Vista speaker for about four or five years. And I've asked this question of hundreds, if not thousands of leaders and said, how much time do you spend working in the business versus on the business? And it's almost always 80 to 90% in and 10 to 20 on. And I said, you have to flip that the other way around. Uh, if you really want your business to grow and you don't want to fall behind, you have to stop running it and you know teach other people or let other people run it. Uh, because you have to give yourself that time and your leadership team has to do it as well because it's a team effort. Um, and uh, my leaders, they just have the hardest time doing that in general. Yeah. So, I mean, that gets to probably part of what you mean when you talk about flourishing, but why, why do some leaders flourish while others don't? Why do some companies survive while others most fail? Yeah. So, um, I think there is a meaningful gap between what science knows and what business does. Um, we rely a lot on conventional wisdom uh, and old ways. And as you said earlier, most of the time that doesn't work anymore. It might work in some industries, etc. cetera. Um, I've also found that uh, Pareto was a really smart guy. And you know, 20% of the effort usually produces 80% of the results. And most businesses don't die of um, starvation, they die of uh, of indigestion. They're doing too many things and they get spread too thin and then that becomes a cash burden. Uh, And then something happens like 9-11 or 2008 or COVID and a lot of those companies get wiped out. They were doing great, but they didn't have enough in reserve. They weren't thinking about the future and and preparing for the future, which we know every six to eight years is gonna be some sort of financial event. We've had three already in 21 years, right? so yeah, it it doesn't take a COVID, right? It's it's just the yeah. natural cyclical process of the economy. Yes. <laughs> yeah, if you look back 30, 40 years, every six to eight years, something has happened that affects some part of the economy, if not the whole economy. Um, and you know, especially here in the United States, we have we suffer greatly from optimism bias. We just don't assume anything bad will happen to us. And then we wonder, you know, and then we blame it on external forces. But if you really look at yourself, you just say, I should have been prepared for this. Um, because it's going to happen. I just don't know when. Uh, and, and that's, so, so I, I would like to answer your question with, uh, with sort of a story. And so you mentioned Alan Mulally. Alan Mulally is my favorite leader in the world, probably ever. Um, I am actually now friends with Alan Mulally, which is kind of cool because I've written about him and he, he read my stuff and, and reached out to me. So we connected. He actually got me into one of his organizations called uh, the Marshall Goldsmith 100. Um, so I'm with all these really cool thought leaders like Dory Clark and Michael Bungay Stanier and Ken Blanchard, the one minute manager guy. And it's just cool to see them on the screen with me. Um, and Alan Mulally, those of you who don't know him, he was the uh, former CEO of Boeing Commercial Aircraft. And then he was the CEO of Ford Motor Company. And uh, Alan did something that I think no, one, no other leader that I have read about has ever done. He actually saved two iconic companies the same exact way. And what he did was he said, you know, um, we have to 
uh, allow ourselves to help ourselves. And, and so in Ford, it was a very macho culture and no one wanted to admit weakness, et cetera. And he came in and he gave everyone permission to admit weakness. And he said, look, we're gonna, he used to do a business process review every week. And that's basically just red, yellow, green, your main parts of your business from red, yellow, green. And he said the first time that he was in there and, and many times after everything was green everywhere. And I think he said about the third time he, he took, so these are people all over the world, right? And there's dozens of people on this phone call or in, or in the room. And he said, folks, you know, when I, when I first started interviewing with Bill Ford, he showed me the financials. And this year, we're going to lose $17 billion. He said, do you think everything's really green? And then the next week, Mark Fields, who eventually took over for him, who was running, I think it's, I don't know which, which group he was, but he was running a, a manufacturing organization. And they weren't producing any cars. They had shut down production. So he turned to his team and said, do you think this is what Alan means about red? We're not actually doing what we're supposed to be doing. So he came to the next meeting and, um, and Mark showed his red and Alan said, you could feel the air leave the room. Uh, and then he said, I started clapping and everyone thought that was a signal for these two big, huge guys to come barreling through the door, grab Mark out of his chair and rip him out of the room. But uh, he eventually sat him next to him. And he, he said, I knew we were gonna make it when everyone, when I started to see the rainbow the rainbow of colors coming in. And all he did was say, okay, who knows how to help Mark? You know, and the guy from Europe said, oh, we had that problem, whatever. And, and they, they realized that it's safe to say, I'm, I'm, not, uh, I'm not doing it. You know, I'm admitting a weakness. I'm admitting that I'm making a mistake, et cetera. So that sort of psychological safety. You have to create, I think a good leader creates what I would call atmosphere. They create the conditions for success. They don't actually make the success. And they give permission to people to do that. So that's, that's sort of my, the epitome for me of how to be a great leader. And by the way, Alan Mulally is a very, very nice human being. You don't have to be a jerk. You don't have to be Elon Musk or Steve Jobs. You know, we love those people because they're great stories, but you don't have to be them. You can be a kind human being. And he's a very kind human being. Now he's tough, right? He said, I'll, I, I will love them up, but I'm holding them to the standard. If you don't meet the standard, then we have to figure that out. Yeah, mutual, mutual accountability is yeah. what builds trust, right? And so uh, while holding the line on expectations, you know, at some, some people could see that as being harsh, that's, that's being a very caring uh, leader because you're trying to help develop your other people. Uh, you're trying to, to support them to accomplish results that will help them and the organization. It will help their career. It'll help the organization in the short term and in the long term. So, so mutual accountability is absolutely essential. And you've said a couple times now throughout our conversation, you referred to kind of this notion that there's no one size fits all, right? And, and clearly, I mean, I'm in the space, I'm, I'm a professor, I do a lot of research in this space. Um, there is no one model of leadership. There is there are lots of different approaches that work depending on the context, depending on the situation, depending on the individual and the team that surrounds them, right? And yeah. so there's no one size fits all, absolutely. You've also talked about followership and servanthood. And that happens to be the exact same framing that I take to leadership because I think in my mind, the number one thing a leader can do and needs to do is to create that psychologically safe environment like you were just mentioning uh, and create a, a climate and a culture where people can grow and uh, discover and then lean into, develop into their full capacity, their full potential, yep. right? 
Um, but that's, I, as a leader, I can't, I can't force my team to develop. All I can do is create the atmosphere in which they can thrive, right? I completely agree. Don't even need to add any more to that. <laughs> well, very good. Um, so we're about out of time, Bill, but uh, before we close, I did want to uh, give you a chance to share with listeners how they can get connected with you, find out more about your book, uh, your, your, your consulting and coaching work, uh, and then give us the final word on the topic for today. Sure. Um, so uh, everything about me is on my website. You can get my phone number, my email address. Uh, I write a blog uh, twice a month. Uh, there are 130 or something on there. Uh, my book is on there. You can download my book for free if you want on a PDF, or you can certainly go to Amazon or Audible and and um, uh, get that there. It's great. I get four or five bucks every time you do, but you know, it's, to me, it's more about the message than the money. I'd rather um, have people do that. The book itself is called Further Faster, The Vital Few Steps That Take the Guesswork Out of Growth. And it's basically applying the Pareto Principle to business. You know, there, there are a number, I believe there are a few big knobs that if you turn them, uh, they'll have a greater impact. And then it, it's not, it's not like a scaling up. It's, I'm not trying to boil the ocean and tell you everything. There are plenty of places that do that. But what I found is if you really focus on these few things that I put in there, which is basically that performance is a team sport. You have to understand that 80% or more of your people are on a team, at least one, sometimes more than one. Often that team is not represented in the org chart, especially if you're a large company. So running a team is a skill. And we should teach our leaders, our potential leaders, how to run a team. There, there are definite things that great team leaders do that team leaders that are mediocre or not great don't do. So we should figure that out. Um, uh, the next is that uh, you have to think of your business as one system. And it's, it's got a bunch of multiple, uh, uh, many subsystems and components. And you have to sort of understand they all fit together and, and each affects the other, depending on how you're doing, right? If you have awesome execution, like almost near flawless execution, your strategy doesn't have to be like the best in the world. Many people have beaten others because they've executed their strategy a little bit better. Uh, and the last thing is if you really wanna grow, if you really want to um, uh, continue to scale your business, you have to understand that cash is your primary financial metric because growth sucks cash. Uh, and you have to spend in front of growth. It's an antecedent to growth. So you have to plan for how much money you'll need in order to do the things you wanna do. And when you do your strategic planning, that's what I teach all my folks. I say, you should, we should lay out the next three years, give or take, but we need to do all the big initiatives and then ask ourselves, how much is that going to cost us? We're going to have to buy some software. How many people will we need? Are we going to have to open up a factory or a new office somewhere? Say, great, now let's build a plan that gives us the cash to do that. You can certainly borrow if you want. Um, you know, friends and family and banks, I think are okay. But once you ask for an investor, you've basically decided to sell your company in part or in whole because they want their money back in five to eight years on, on average. Um, so that's it. Teams of uh, uh, performance is a team sport. Run your business as one cohesive system and then use um, cash as your primary financial growth metric. And that's what the book is about um, for what I do. And then uh, the final word for me is, uh, and I'll stick with my Pareto thing, which is a few things truly matter in life or in business. But those that do matter tremendously. Leaders and Parents and friends need to spend much more time there. You'll get, you'll get a lot more by doing less. I love it. Thank you, Bill. It has been a real pleasure talking with you. 
Um, I would love to have you back anytime because this has just been a really fun discussion and the time cool. flew by. Um, so you're welcome back anytime. I really encourage listeners to reach out to Bill, get connected on LinkedIn, check out his book, check out his, his company and find out what he can do to help you. And as always, I hope everyone can stay healthy and safe, that you can find meaning and purpose at work each and every day. And I hope you all have a great week. We are excited about the launch of HCI's new magazine, Human Capital Leadership. Human Capital Leadership is a free interactive e-magazine designed to help individuals, leaders, and organizations find innovative approaches to maximize their human capital potential. We will be publishing issues quarterly in August, November, February, and May. Check out the first issue and let us know what you think. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. I hope you stay healthy and safe and that you have a great week. Check out our new weekly LinkedIn newsletter, Alchemizing Human Capital, exploring industry trends via original research and interviews with executives and thought leaders from across the globe. We look forward to having you join us.